We imagine a world where our legal system prioritizes the livelihoods and lives of people over the property and accumulation of wealth through the extractive nature of resources. All our unique roles in the struggle are out of necessity. Protecting Mother Earth is not terrorism, it is a necessity. Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Human rights lawyer Stephen Donziger walked free Monday after 993 days of detention stemming from his decades-long legal fight with Chevron, which deployed its vast resources in a campaign to destroy Donziger after he won a $9.5 billion settlement against the fossil fuel giant over its pollution of the Amazon rainforest. It's over, just left with the release papers in hand, Donziger wrote on Twitter. Completely unjust that I spent even one day in this Kafkaesque situation, not looking back, onward. Donziger's case has attracted global attention and outrage, with the United Nations High Commissioner on Human Rights calling his prolonged detention a violation of international law. Lawmakers in the United States have also decried Donziger's prosecution as an unprecedented and unjust legal assault. Quote, we are relieved that Stephen Donziger will finally recover his freedom after almost 1,000 days of arbitrary detention, which included 45 days in prison and over 900 days under house arrest. Deanna Deloy, senior policy advisor at Amnesty International, said in a statement Monday, quote, he should have never been detained for even one day, as it has been clear the whole process against him has been in retaliation for his human rights work that exposed corporate wrongdoing. Corporations must not be allowed to continue abusing the U.S. justice system to silence and intimidate human rights defenders or anyone else exposing their wrongdoing. A federal magistrate judge this week refused to shield Florida Department of Corrections Secretary Ricky Dixon and former Secretary Julie Jones from testifying in a legal battle about the use of solitary confinement in the prison system. The department's attorneys in March sought a protective order to prevent depositions of Dixon and Jones. In part, the attorneys argued that Dixon and Jones should not be forced to testify in depositions unless plaintiffs could, quote, demonstrate that the agency heads are uniquely able to provide relevant information that cannot be obtained from other sources, end quote. But in a 23-page decision Tuesday, U.S. Magistrate Judge Martin Fitzpatrick said Dixon and Jones had been heavily involved in issues related to solitary confinement and that the plaintiffs had not been able to get the information they sought from other sources. Plaintiffs had demonstrated a high degree of personal involvement of both Ms. Jones and Mr. Dixon over the course of many years, Fitzpatrick wrote. As secretary, they have been a unique perspective and have firsthand knowledge of why pilot programs were begun and discontinued. Plaintiffs have shown that these individuals are not persons who have had only limited and marginal involvement. They played a significant role in pursuing a course of action after considering various alternatives. These individuals, as policymakers of the department, can explain the reason for choosing to utilize solitary confinement to the degree it is used in the state and should be able to better explain the basis for choices made." End quote. The lawsuit filed in 2019 contends that the department has overused solitary confinement 
including for inmates diagnosed with mental illnesses. This week, we hear the first part of the recent webinar, USA versus Jessica Reznicek, Fighting the Criminalization of Water Protectors. We've covered Reznicek's case before on the show. She's currently serving prison time for her role in actions against pipeline infrastructure. The folks we hear from today give us insight into Jessica's case and other activists like her. Here they are. My name is Charlotte, and I'm an organizer on the Free Jess team. And today marks Jess's 250th day in prison. So we decided to bring some folks together. We can learn about her case and uh, folks can find ways to plug in. Yat A, can you all hear me? Yat A, Leola Cowboy Yenisha, Twata Kozinish, Sinna Jini, Bashish Chin, Tachitni, Dachate, Nakai Dene, Dashanali. Hi, everyone. Oh my gosh, it's so awesome to see all of your beautiful faces. Um, we're really excited to be here today, all around Jessica Reznicek. And we do have an amazing lineup today. And Charlotte and I will be moderating. And we're really excited you all are here today with us. So, yeah. Okay, so we'll start by giving a bit of background to Jess's case. So on election night in 2016, Jessica Reznicek and another woman disabled pipeline equipment and later used a welder to cut small holes in sections of an empty pipe. In July 2017, they publicly admitted to this and three months later, Jess's home was raided by the FBI. Two years later, a grand jury indicted Jessica on multiple charges. She was then sentenced in June of 2020-21, so that's less than a year ago, and she received eight years of a prison sentence. A domestic terrorism enhancement included and ordered to pay $3.2 million to energy transfer partners in restitution. On August 11th of last year, just reported to the women's prison in Minnesota. We'll first get an introduction through Alex, a member of our free Jessica Reznicek team and met Jess in Iowa when resistance efforts were sprouting up against the No Doubt. Hey everyone, it's so awesome to see you and so many familiar faces, friends and family of Jessica. Um, so I just wanted, before we dive in, I wanna take a brief moment to talk about the work Jessica did to stop Dapple that maybe you haven't heard about. Um, and there's no better way to do this than to talk about Lee County, Iowa. After running with the Lakota youth to Washington DC to demand Obama stop the pipeline, Jessica followed her heart and went back to her home state of Iowa to protect the water that she enjoyed finding solace in as a kid. This brought her to a site where they were drilling underneath the Mississippi River to bring the pipeline from Iowa to Illinois, where it would eventually end. She would er erect a solo blockade with tires and her guitar on the only access road to the drill pad. She was arrested, released 24 hours later, and then she did it again was arrested and released. And then she asked the sheriff where she could stand without being arrested. And he pointed to, um, pointed to the ditch next to the access road, the only access road leading to the drill pad. So Jessica pitched her tent along with members of the Des Moines Catholic worker community and uh, asked the world to join her. And slowly but surely they would. Though not talked about much, Jessica was a, was a dynamic community organizer in Lee County. The work she did there really fomented 
huge resistance in Iowa from people of all walks of life. She cared deeply about the local community of Keokuk and Lee County and spent every waking hour of that campaign doing outreach, holding space for the local community, making sure they were included in the meetings and decision-making process and helping them feel empowered while after years of fighting and largely failing in the court system, showing them another avenue of change. This became known as Mississippi Stand, uh, which was the longest direct action campaign in Iowa. And after they finished boring underneath the Mississippi River, Jessica would, uh, she would leave Mississippi Stand and she would go on her own journey. And that is uh, where many of you probably learned Jessica's story and what brought us here today and kind of what we're gonna talk about. And we kind of just wanted to ground in that, that work, that larger work Jessica did um, against the Dakota Access Pipeline leading up to what brought us all here today. So I'll pass it back to our wonderful host. Thanks, Alex. I'd also like to introduce um, some more speakers from the Water Protector Legal Collective, Nijoni Begay and Jaden Cowboy. Nijoni is Dene and Quechua serves as the communications coordinator at WPLC. Along her work at WPLC, she is co-editor on the To Be Named graphic anthology by Red Planet Books and Comet featuring water protectors. Nijoni graduated from Stanford University with a degree in political science and minors in music and comparative studies in race and ethnicity. Jaden is an Afro-Indigenous woman from the Diné Nation. She is a community legal liaison at WPLC. She temporarily located to North Dakota during the No Dapple movement, where she took an active role as a volunteer, completing work ranging from on the ground tasks to support. Hello, Yat A, Jaden Cowboy Yenishek, Torakozi Nishle, Nahili Bashishin, Tistajuni Dasha Che, Nahili Dashanali. My name is Jaden Cowboy. I am Dene Nahile Afro Indigenous. Yat and hello. Um Nijon Vigay Yanishye, Nakai Nishle, Hashklishni Bashishin, Nakai Dashache, Kurachini Dashanala. My name is Nijoni Bigay and I am Danan Ketwa. The Water Protector Legal Collective, or WPLC, is an Indigenous-led legal nonprofit that provides support and advocacy for Indigenous peoples and original nations, the earth and climate justice movements. Born out of the No Dapple movement, WPLC's founding mission was to serve as the on-the-ground legal team for the Indigenous-led resistance to the Dakota Access Pipeline at Standing Rock, North Dakota. Since we first arrived at the request of tribal leadership, and set up a legal tent in Ocheti, Point. WPLC has been providing legal support to the water protective movement. In addition to our core legal support work, we recognize that education and skill development for indigenous peoples is a certain component of our work as a sharing legal information as a means to building agency and power in the struggle for liberation and against environmental destruction and racism. Standing Rock sent out a call to those willing to answer, and in turn, the significance of Standing Rock's part in history has awakened a movement calling for change, a call that has brought forth many avenues we must now face. The legal challenges that came out of the No Dapple movement has revealed different methods on how we navigate and deal with mass criminal defense, um, multi-levels of intimidation and scare tactics, whether on the ground or uh, systematically. Here at WPLC, we are committed to our mission providing legal support and advocacy to climate justice movements through an indigenous lens by indigenous people. 
Our work spans several movements. Most recently, we have been working on the ground with water protectors at line three, serving on Stephen Donziger's appellate team and continuing our, our work from Standing Rock by filing an appeal at the end of this week on the Dundon case. If you weren't aware, Dundon v. Kirschmeyer is a federal civil rights class action lawsuit filed by nine named plaintiffs on behalf of hundreds of no dapple water protectors who were injured by law enforcement in 2016. At least 200 water protectors were injured and dozens hospitalized from Backwater Bridge. Water cannons were used in freezing weather conditions against water protectors. In direct response to the no dapple movement, critical infrastructure bills have been enacted in 15 states and are pending in several states. These are aimed to increase criminal penalties for anyone taking action against destructive fossil fuel projects. The details vary per state, but they impose felony charges for trespassing and impeding the operation of pipelines, power plants, and other critical infrastructure. Under these bills, acts such as blocking access to a construction site have become felonies instead of misdemeanors. Prosecutors can seek 10 times the original fines for any groups found to be conspirators, which is a very gray area. These bills are aggressively backed by the oil and gas industry and intentionally raise the stakes for activists to engage in civil disobedience. We take issue with this. Fossil fuels are not critical and they are harming our homes. Alongside the National Lawyers Guild, we filed an amicus brief in support of Jessica's appeal. It was important for us to support Jess because we supported all other federally charged no dapple political prisoners. Those who face federal charges from actions against no Dakota Access Pipeline were all Indigenous people except for Jessica. We have two main issues with the terrorist enhancement. Number one is the fact that the Dakota Access Pipeline is now operating illegally. Additionally, the few years DAPLA has been in operation, over 10 spills have been reported. The second issue we have is the amount of evidence in statements by Jess that her actions were exclusively aimed at stopping DAPLA. Jessica Reznicek didn't want to hurt anybody. We want to take time today to remind everyone who is tuning in that Jess's actions in Iowa were in solidarity with Indigenous peoples, in particular the Standing Rock Sioux Nation. Indigenous communities, water protectors, and climate activists have continued to oppose DAPL for its pollution and disruption of Indigenous communities and their lands. This has continued not too long ago. We were at Blind 3 watching our relatives and lifelong comrades thrown on the ground, strip searched, and traumatized. All for what? an inanimate oil pipeline. On top of the criminalization of water protectors, we have witnessed other forms of policing and the dangers water protectors experience. The racism and targeting they have faced in person and online has caused many to become as anonymous as possible in order to stay safe. Policing, surveillance, and criminalization all come with the extractive industry. For example, the extractive industry has a link to MMIW. Oil producing counties in North Dakota and Montana experienced a 70% increase in aggravated assault against indigenous women while non-oil producing counties in those states experienced a corresponding decrease during the same time frame. More specifically, women in the oil producing counties experienced a 54% increase in sexual assault, including heightened rates of sexual trafficking of women and children. Sentencing Jess under a federal terrorism enhancement for acts of civil disobedience, targeting private property sets an alarming precedent for climate justice movements and endangers indigenous and frontline defenders most impacted by worsening climate conditions. These communities are disproportionately impacted by the effects of climate change. The ability to call for substantial measures or slow or halt climate change is literally a matter of life or death for us. If it can happen once to our comrade Jessica Reznicek, what precedent does that set? What does that mean for our children and our grandchildren who are watching? Will they eventually face the similar fate? 
just put her life on the line because she wanted to protect the water. As our program director, Leo LeCowboy says, we shouldn't be asked to decide between seeing our children grow up and stopping harmful pipelines. Branding water protectors, land defenders, and other environmental activists as eco-terrorists results in this green scare that has led to legal and legislative repercussions for climate justice defenders. Just as actions were out of necessity in response to environmental terror created by large corporations and capitalism, the industry coined phrase eco-terrorism aims to incriminate all of us for doing what is right. At the time of justice actions in Iowa, we had exhausted all legal remedies to halt Dapple. Jessica Resnicek has a long history of fighting for what's right. Whether it's in Palestine or Central America, Jess embodied what it means to stand up for peace and justice. She doesn't deserve FBI raids, but rather celebration for the risks she took on to make a difference. As Jess said, I need to believe that I will continue to contribute in making this world a better place, no matter where I am. We all need to. We stand in solidarity with Jess and all water protectors demanding an end to irreversible climate change. We imagine a world where our legal system prioritizes the livelihoods and lives of people over the property and accumulation of wealth through the extractive nature of resources. All our unique roles in the struggle are out of necessity. Protecting Mother Earth is not terrorism, it is a necessity. Hell yeah, y'all are awesome. That was so great to hear just the broader implications of Jess's case, like the connections to missing and murdered indigenous women, like this this isn't just about Jess, this is about so many other things and how the criminalization of water protectors started at Standing Rock and then the critical infrastructure bills that came out of that. So thank y'all, that was awesome. We're now gonna hear from two people fighting these critical infrastructure laws in the federal court. This is Cherie Foytlin and Cindy Spoon. They are both from the Loe La Vie camp or campaign to stop the Bayou Bridge pipeline. Okay, hello everyone. Um, I'll start, but Shree, feel free, jump in, interrupt me, whatever you need to do. Like I said, I am here representing the Loe La Vie campaign. We were a direct action campaign fighting the Bayou Bridge pipeline, um, which is also an energy transfer partners pipeline. In 2018, just to go right off of what the other speakers were saying, because of the effectiveness at Standing Rock and also the effectiveness of our campaign, the state of Louisiana passed one of these critical infrastructure laws that made it a felony to trespass or a felony to damage quote unquote critical infrastructure. That law went into place August 1st of 2018. And on August 9th, myself and two of my friends were the first people to be arrested and charged with felony trespassing on critical infrastructure, even though we were in a public waterway, the Atchafalaya Basin. So we're fighting our own arrest. We're challenging that, the case is Spoon v. Bayou Bridge, and we're having a lot of success, but that's just a wrongful arrest suit. On top of that, and I'll let Cherie speak to this a little bit more, over a dozen more folks from our campaign were also charged with these felony charges. And some of them were on private property that they had permission to be on. So these critical infrastructure laws really enabled this pipeline company, ETP, that we know is a bad actor. We saw how they treated people at Standing Rock. These critical infrastructure laws really enabled this company to kind of go very rogue and break their own laws and charge us when we were on public waterways, charge people when they're on private property with these felony charges. 
These felony charges came with five years of prison time. These charges were hanging over our head for three years. They finally have been dropped, thank God. Shout out to Bill Quigley, who's also one of our lawyers. Shout out to Center for Constitutional Rights. So now that our charges have been dropped, we have also filed another lawsuit. That one is White Hat v. Landry. And this is to challenge the constitutionality of these critical infrastructure laws. So we're suing the state of Louisiana. Our lawyers have filed for a summary judgment and we're hoping to get a ruling on that in a few months. That would just be summary judgment to find that law unconstitutional. I wanna pass it over to Shree to say a little bit more, but I think the last thing I kind of wanted to say is that it's easy to talk about now because my charges have been dropped, but for three years I had this felony hanging over my head. And it is, these laws are being passed to try to chill our activism and to chill our resistance. And it is scary and it is chilling to have five years of prison time or whatever it may be hanging over your head. But the worst thing that we can do is to actually stop fighting back or to stop taking action. It's the worst thing we can do is if we actually let them succeed in chilling our resistance and chilling our actions. So even before these critical infrastructure laws, just like with Jessica, there's always been some risk in taking action, but we all know that the risk of inaction is far, far greater. So I wanna pass it over to Shree and if I think of anything else, I'll say more. Hi, um, my name is Shree Coyle. And it's very nice to be able to speak with you all tonight. This is a subject that's near and dear to my heart since I was one of the people that were charged on land that we had permission to be on, but ETP did not have permission to be on. And I just want to uh, underline what Cindy said about, like, to be honest, like in Louisiana, they had never seen a campaign like ours. And they had never seen people stand up and say, we're willing to put our bodies on the line to protect the waters of the Atchafalaya Basin and the drinking water of the United Home and Nation. And so, yeah, I just wanna just underline that again, we were winning. And when you're in a game against a bad character and you're winning, a lot of times they cheat, okay? So these laws, they're just cheating, right? That's all they're doing. And we have to find a way to, to go around that and to figure it out to stop the laws in the first place, the law, all that stuff. But the first thing we got to do is make an example out of these states that have decided that it is against the law and morally reprehensible for us to stand up for our own lives. Okay. And the first thing we have to do is we have to make an example out of what happened to Jessica from my perspective. And that means we have to show them that we are willing to give whatever we got when one of us is taken down unfairly and unduly. We have to show that because that kind of power and that kind of strength breeds courage now look there's a lot of stuff going on in this world like you know, we got the climate we got all this stuff and it's hard to say like how how can we devote so much time to like one person right but that one person uh gave every single thing she had for me for you for our kids and it's that damn time for us to stand up for the people who are doing the work and fighting the fight and losing the battle to protect themselves from these jerks right Okay, so me, I love revenge, man. I'm just saying this, okay? You can't always go by the book. You can't always try to just file a petition and hope for the best. Sometimes it takes a little bit of strong arm. And that means you got to stand up, you got to show up, you got to be there, and you got to say, if you're going to take one of us down, boo, you're going to take us all down, right? Okay, so that's what I'm hoping will come out of this. I want to see people stand up, and you know why? Because it could be me. And I got sick kids to take care of. And at any moment in those three years, they could have said, we're taking you away from your kids. 
And I do not intend to ever let that happen. And I do not wish for that to happen to anyone else. So we need to make an example, an example of them because they are going outside of our constitutional rights. They're going outside the moral uh, semblance of the universe, natural rights. They are, they're evil, man. They're the green goblin, you know? We got to stand up and, and be the Iron Man or whoever it was and, and fight back. I gotta ask my boy who was the father, but I tell you what, we can do it. We just gotta dig deep and stand up for each other. Um, that's the best we can do. Don't forget, everybody, these people who are fighting for the environment, don't forget that Jessica's a part of the environment too. And so are you, and so, are, so am I, right? And that means if you're gonna protect the earth, we gotta protect each other. That's all I got. Damn, y'all are forces to be reckoned with. It's so great. I mean, everyone on this panel, but yeah, it's so powerful to hear how y'all not just are stopping the Bayou Bridge pipeline, but also taking these critical infrastructure bills head on and just to hear you both just solidify for us how much stronger we are when we're together and we're supporting each other. And Jess is the land. She is nature. She is what we're fighting for. So yeah, just thank you for that. Um, we're now going to zoom out a little bit and hear how the federal government is responding more broadly to protesters. Uh, next up, we have Monty from the Free Jess team, who's going to give some broader political context to Jess's case. Hi, y'all. My name is Monty. I am part of the Free Jess team, and um, I live in Minnesota. I guess first I'll just start off with a little political context. So after Jess took responsibility for her actions, like the acts of property destruction against the Dakota Access Pipeline, there were 84 uh, Congress people and representatives who wrote the Justice Department a letter asking Jeff Sessions and the Justice Department to prosecute Jess and her like partner, as well as the valve turners who shut off a pipeline during the same time period as terrorists. When we talk about Jess's case, we have to realize that one of the main reasons she was labeled a terrorist was because there was this group of 84 there were 80 Republicans, four Democrats, who, who asked the Justice Department to do this. The letter was drafted by oil lobbyists. And so it was just kind of like this disgusting thing that happened that also happens to be kind of effective. One of the things that our campaign is doing right now is have a response to that, you know, is, is to not let that be the only voice in the room and to, to make sure everyone's talking about Jess and everyone knows that it's, it's not okay. Yeah, and I met Jess first in Iowa during Mississippi stands. It was Thanksgiving, and she was like six days into a hunger strike outside the IUB, which is like the Iowa Utilities Board. And so we were like, yeah, I just thought she was kind of an intense person who was like doing a hunger strike outside of like a building, you know? And we went and like heckled the governor and later she took responsibility for cutting a bunch of holes in a bunch of pipe. And I heard her speak and heard her words and they totally brought me to tears because I was definitely fighting that pipeline and, and we were all losing, you know, and wanted to do something more. And Jess did a bunch more, you know, and just talked about the responsibility that she had to the land. And she had to the indigenous people fighting this pipeline. So that felt really sincere to me. 
We'll share the rest of this webinar in future episodes, and we'll have links to the full video of this panel, along with our previous episodes about ResnaCheck, on our website. Thank you to everyone who helps with the show. This has been KiteLine. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. And if you want to financially support our work, you can become a supporter at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. Please check out our new searchable website with hundreds of archived shows at kitelineradio.org. After a brief hiatus, we're happy to report that our prisoner call-in phone line is back. Folks on the inside or their outside friends and supporters can call 765-343-6236 to record a message to be played on the air. Please share this number widely and we'll try to answer and air all messages possible. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.